looked at uh, two texts this morning for our scriptural focus. They both came from the Apostle Paul, from one of his each two letters to the church in Corinth. The first scripture that we looked at came from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 13. And essentially the sentiment of that text is that God doesn't put on us more than we can bear. Oftentimes when we look at that text, just at face value, we often take it out of context and we apply it to all different types of life situations. You know, you'll have somebody that uh, ups and breaks their leg and someone will say to them, trying to encourage them, you know what, don't worry, you broke your leg. God didn't put on you more than you can bear. You'll, you'll handle it. You'll be just fine. Somebody's going through cancer and somebody will simply say, ah, you know what, the fact that you got this cancer, uh, don't worry about it. God didn't put on you more than you can bear. You'll be just fine. And the reality of it is people are suffering. People are dealing with some stuff. They feel broken. They feel beat down. Then we take a look at the second text. And here Paul is describing essentially just a situation where he was traveling, right? This is coming from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. He's traveling. And throughout his travel, he experiences something that it tested, it rocked his faith, his belief in God so much, he thought of death. He thought they were about to die. And honestly, if you think about life and the world that we live in, it is so messed up. There's issue after issue. People are at odds. There's crisis after crisis. Paul's sentiment in the second text that we go through life situations. It's for a reason. And oftentimes it is. It literally is more than the human will, the human spirit, the human physical ability can actually bear. But God allows that. And he allows it for a certain reason. The difference between the two texts is basically one deals with temptation. We know that God doesn't tempt and he doesn't tempt with evil. But the second actually deals with life circumstances. And God does use life circumstances sometimes to humble us, to break us, and to refine our character in what we call the crucible of life. You know, we encounter problems on a daily basis, right? And oftentimes, the small problems that we deal with just because of experience and because of the fact that we try over and over again, we learn how to deal with those problems. We learn how to figure it out. And God is faithful in that if he allowed us only to just deal with small problems, for some of us, for some of us, we may live a life completely void of the need for him or of the fact that he even exists. I mean, if we just lived a life where we could solve our own problems, what use is God for us, right? But God is so faithful that some of the problems that he gives us is in order that we simply know that he'll exist. To kind of help illustrate this point this morning, I want us to turn to a familiar passage of scripture. We're going to look at the story of Naaman this morning. We're going to turn to 2 Kings chapter 5, and we are just going to look at the first 15 verses. 2 Kings chapter 5, looking at the first 15 verses. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read the word of God. I always ask you to stand simply for two reasons. Reason number one, to honor God. Reason number two, for all the online viewers tuning in, it lets them know that SDA does not stand for sitting down always, but rather Seventh-day Adventists. Second Kings, chapter five, 
verses 1 through 15. I am reading from the ESV. Feel free to follow along in any version that you have. It says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of the raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, that being the king of Syria, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he, being Naaman, went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him now come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not the Abana and Fapar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not have washed in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he, he being Naaman, went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Verse 15, then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, behold, I know there is, a, there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. Let us pray. Father in heaven, here I am, so have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I just have three points for you today as we look into the events of Naaman's life. Point number one, the difference between a problem and a crisis. Difference between a problem and a crisis. Point number two, healing 
begins with believing. And the third and final point is that the purpose of a crisis is godly conversion. You know, when I like to take a dive into a text, there's four C's that I like to essentially wrap myself around. The first C is called context. Then we look for Christ-centeredness or Christ-focus. And then we talk about comfort, confrontation, and then comfort. So let's talk about the context. You know, the events of Naaman always kind of a little bit baffled me a little bit because we go from talking about God and his relationship with the children of Israel, his chosen people, to somebody who was not part of that company, completely outside of that set group, smack right dead in the middle of God talking about everything that he has done for the children of Israel. So by the time we get to the events of 2 Kings chapter 5, we're talking about Naaman, at this point in the history of the Bible, what we've experienced is this, right? We've had God who's created the world. You know, he created Adam and Eve. They sinned. They fell. We had several generations. Noah shows up on the scene. Uh, God pretty much uses Noah that he's going to recreate the world through him. There's a flood. They start all over again. There's many generations. We go through the history of the patriarchs. We got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We know that Jacob has 12 sons. One of those 12 sons named Joseph goes into Egypt. He ultimately saves his entire family. His family then comes into Egypt. And then for 400 years, the nation of Israel is enslaved in Egypt. After that point in time, what happens? God then delivers his people out of Egypt by the hands of Moses. They spend 40 years in the wilderness. And then after that, there's a young man by the name of Joshua leads those people into the promised land. After that, we have the time of the judges. That's when we hear about Goliath and all those different folks. And then we have a lot of what we see backsliding by the nation of Israel. And then even beyond that, the nation of Israel gets to the point where they start to look around at all the other nations in the area. And they say, you know what? We want to be like them. We want a king just as they have a king. We don't just want the judges. So the nation of Israel, they come together. They select or elect Saul as their first king. Saul serves for a period of time. After him, he is superseded by David, right? David serves as king for 40 years, and then after David comes his son, Solomon. This is the second child that he had by Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah, who David essentially killed, right? During this time, after Solomon reigns, his son comes on the scene. But when Solomon is king, he essentially taxes the nation of Israel so much because his desire was to complete his father's plans to build a temple for God. That temple would end up being in Jerusalem. You know, so all this wealth was being concentrated in the southern part of the kingdom where Jerusalem is. And then you have all these other tribes, I'd say other 10 tribes, excluding Judah and Benjamin in the north, upset about how much they're being taxed to help build this temple. That by the time Solomon's son comes on the scene, the nation is complaining. And they're saying to Solomon's son, look. We've been taxed quite heavily, and we're not really seeing the fruits and the benefits of all this because it's all being concentrated down in Jerusalem. So at this point, the nation of Israel splits into two. We got the northern kingdom in the north, and then we got the southern kingdom made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. So we got ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. They continue with that for a while, each kingdom having a series of kings, and we got some getting closer to God, and for the most part, everybody's continuously drifting away. We get to the point in the history where we talk about and hear about the prophet Elijah. You know, he's kind of like a, a typecast of John the Baptist, and then after him, we have Elisha, 
who comes on the scene and does wonders for the kingdom of God. But in this time, we have a nation, both the South and the North, that are backsliding. And God now sends different countries in the area to essentially discipline his kingdom. So that's how we get to 2 Kings chapter 5, and that's how we have Naaman, who is essentially not part of God's chosen people, being talked about in this verse, because God is using Naaman to serve a purpose to correct his own people. So as we get into this text, I want you to see where you can identify Jesus Christ in the text. I'll give you a hint. I want you to look at the actions of Elisha and see if there's any resemblance to our Savior. After we focus on Christ, the next thing we're going to do is talk about the confrontation being looked at and the truth and the comfort of restoring God with all of his creation. All right, so let's talk about point number one. The difference between a problem and a crisis. It said, verse 2 of 2 Kings chapter 5, that Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So in this first verse, we learn some things about Naaman. Thing number one, we learn that Naaman had a successful career. He had status and he had position. He was the commander of the king's army. So that came with a great, great job. You can think of him as being COO of all Assyria with the king essentially being the CEO, right? The second thing we learn about Naaman is that he had a great reputation. It says that he was in high favor with the king and also everyone else. So he was a great man with his master and he was in high favor. So that means that the king loved him, but he also had the respect of the ranks and all the soldiers underneath his command. The third thing we learn about Naaman is that God worked through him. So he had some form of religion. You know, even though they weren't part of God's chosen people, they had a religion of their own and they believed that the gods were serving their purpose, their gods. So he had a form of religion. And then the fourth thing we learn in this one verse alone is that he was a mighty man of valor. You'll often see that text in the Old Testament, mighty man of valor. Essentially, that just simply means that he had strength, he had courage, and he had passion. So this was a warrior that had strength, courage, passion. He needed that, and that's why he had the respect of his peers, of his subordinates, and also his own master. But unfortunately, we hear that Naaman was a leper. You know, having leprosy in that time was essentially e equivalent to a social death sentence, okay? It meant that if an individual had leprosy, they had to give up everything in their life and live their life as a social outcast apart from all of society. If leprosy was some type of normal problem where Naaman could either go to a specialist and get rid of it, he had the status, he had the wealth, he had the power to get an audience and to pay for whatever specialist he needed to get rid of this problem. But there was nothing within his grasp, nothing within his ability that was going to change the fact that he had leprosy and he couldn't get rid of it. This was the plight of anyone who had this condition. So Naaman just didn't have a problem. He was actually in a crisis. You know, a problem is essentially an issue or a situation 
that you can reasonably work out. Versus a crisis is a situation where you can't reasonably do anything about, you can't reasonably think of a solution. But here's the kicker, if you take no action in a crisis, the outcome is usually going to be very dire, very hurtful consequences. Let me give you some examples. Here's a problem. You have the common cold. Well, in today's day and age, you know what to do. You could probably get something over the counter, a few medications here or there, take some rest, drink lots of fluids, problem solved. You have stage four, you've been diagnosed with stage four cancer. Over the counter medication isn't gonna do anything. You're gonna need something more severe. And even still, if you choose to do nothing, for the most part, you know what the outcome is going to be. Problem. You're running low on fuel. Ah, you know what? Um, I'm about uh, 15 miles from me. I got a gas station up the way. I know what I got to do. I got to pull in, get some gas. Crisis. You ran out of fuel. You're in the middle of nowhere. There's a blizzard outside. It's nighttime. You have no water, no food in the car. You can't run your car because you're out of gas. If you choose to sit in the car, you'll freeze. If you choose to walk, who knows what's going to happen to you if somebody's going to find you. You're in a crisis. But you got to do something because doing nothing means you sit and freeze and die in your car. Problem. You have a spouse, and they're hinting at you that perhaps we need to go see a counselor. We've been having some communication breakdowns. We need to figure this out. That's a problem. Okay, we can go see a specialist, somebody to kind of help facilitate us talking and working out our issue. Crisis. You come home from work, you find that your spouse has packed your bags, they are out on the curb, they have changed the locks, and now you are banging on the front door and then even trying to peep in the window to let your spouse let you in. It is, exact, is at that exact moment that the cops pull up and turn on their sirens and they see you because it's dark outside and you're wearing a hoodie because it's now starting to rain, banging on a window. They don't believe that you work there. It's starting to look like a crisis. They pull up and ask you why you're banging on the window, put your hands up. You've gone from problem to crisis. Crisis require us taking action in order to present severe suffering. You know, climatologists, scientists, they're all saying that we're in a global warming crisis. We gotta change the way we use energy. We gotta be more green about what we're doing. We gotta use less fossil fuels. We gotta drive less. We gotta uh, maybe walk more or change the bicycles or look at some alternative form of energy. Otherwise, the earth is going to get to a point where it's just going to be too hot and we won't be able to reverse course. We got economists telling us that we're in an economic crisis, that if we don't do something for the people, if we don't do something to change these interest rates or to lower the cost of living, everyone is going to go into complete chaos, economic crisis. We got a refugee crisis, even at our southern border. We got folks coming up, fleeing from all different types of hardships. But if we just turn our backs, continuously build a wall, and do nothing, people are going to die. We got the war crisis in Ukraine, as well as many other places and even on the continent of Africa, where people are suffering. If we do nothing, people will die. A crisis basically robs you of your focus, of your concentration. It alters your actions. It challenges your faith. It makes you forget every other blessing that is taking place in your life and even the fact that you are still 
alive. Are you following me? We got the difference between a problem and a crisis. But now we got to move from crisis to healing. Let's look at point number two and go back to verse two of 2 Kings chapter 5. It says, now the Syrians on one of the raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. You know, we can't say for certain how Naaman physically or emotionally reacted or displayed his plight in that current situation. But I believe his sentence, his senses were very heightened. They were keen to anything that could possibly bring relief. He was going to at least try it at this point. You know, when you go through a crisis or when God allows you to go through a crisis, the reasons could be to refine your character, to humble you, or to break you free of the chains of self-dependency. But think about this. Syria at that time was a male-dominated society, as was pretty much the rest of the world. The idea that women could have a voice or an idea that would offer or provide a solution was unheard of. As a matter of fact, they were excluded from having any type of authority. And actually, if you think about the way we're going today with Roe v. Wade, it seems like we're going back to that. But that's beside the point. But here you have Naaman, crippled by his crisis, that he is willing to listen to a lowly slave girl. In fact, so lowly that this girl is going unnamed in the account. We have no idea what her name is. But let me just stop for a second and just do a quick commercial break on this young girl. We got to understand that this young girl, a young Israelite girl, at one point in time had parents. Her parents taught her about God, about God's saving power, his saving grace, what he does through his people that believe and love for him. And she knew of the prophet Elisha. She knew what Elisha was doing. The point in this young girl is that as parents, we have no idea what's going to happen to our kids later on in life. All we can do is to simply teach them, raise them up in the Lord, encourage them in our faith so that when they are called into whatever situation God has them to be a witness in, they are ready, able, willing, and courageous enough to tell God and to tell others that there's a God that saves. Just a quick point on the young girl. You got to understand that. But let's get back on track. We got the young girl telling her master, Naaman, that there's a prophet in Samaria that can heal him of his leprosy. Naaman says, oh, man, that's a great idea. I got to take this information. I got to go tell my king that, hey, there is a guy that can help me out in this. The king says, hey, you know, that's a great idea because for him, the king wants Naaman to get back into health because through Naaman they were winning battles the kingdom of Syria was becoming richer and richer so for the king hey that's a great idea so the king says you know what I'm going to send a letter to the king in Israel that you be healed and Naaman took his part of his own wealth and said you know what I'm going to offer uh, to pay for my healing as well so Naaman rolls up into Israel and he says to the king, here's a letter that I have from my king of Syria. 
I need to be healed by this guy, the prophet. The king of Israel hears this and he says, you know what? There's nothing I can do. But Elisha hears about the plight and he tells the king to send Naaman his way. Naaman goes, visits Elisha, but he doesn't even get an audience with Elisha. In fact, Elisha only sends out a messenger to simply tell Naaman what to do. That is to go dip in the Jordan seven times. And then we get to verse 11, and let's read that part. It says, but Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Fapar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the river Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman still had an issue. He was still too proud and too self-reliant. You know, he traveled a great distance. He thought of himself as a VIP, you know, a very important person. He came with wealth. He came with money. He was expecting to be treated like a VIP. And in all honesty, I can't really not name him because when you think about how we act today, that's so typical of even good Christian people, that we expect God to show up in a big way. When we've been walking through the fire, particularly if the crisis has caused us public humiliation, we expect God to show up and to show out. It's like, Lord, you allowed me to get laid off. Everybody saw me get walked out of my job. Now, give me a bigger and better position that I can brag about you and I can post about it on social media. But if God answers and says, hey, look, why don't you just go work this part-time job? Or why don't you just hang back and just stay on unemployment for a second? We get bothered by that and say, you know what, God, that's not good enough. Or sometimes we'll say, Lord, you know that I've been going to the local food pantry for the past year. Everybody's been seeing me going in and out of there. They know I'm not working. They know I have no food. Don't you think it's time for you to pour out a blessing that I don't have room enough to receive it? But if God says, you know what? You're being fed. You're still eating. Isn't that good enough? We have an issue with that. It's almost as if we say, Lord, everybody saw that eviction notice get placed on my door or they saw the foreclosure sign that was hanged out in front of my house. Now, bless me with a mansion on the good side of town so everybody can see how much you love the people that believe in you. But if God says, you know what? I got a special place for you in the basement of your parents' home or on your friend's couch. We'll say to God, you know what? That's not good enough. We tell God all the time, show us a great sign and we'll believe. Here's the truthful lesson. Healing begins with simply believing the word of God followed by obedience. You know, when Jesus was on earth, primarily 
and overwhelmingly he heard, he healed simply by the word. Sometimes he touched others or allowed himself to be touched, but primarily and overwhelmingly it was simply by the word spoken that people were healed. Sometimes he healed in their presence, and sometimes he wasn't even in the vicinity of the person that was sick. You know, we often recite Romans 10, 17. You know what it says. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by what? The word of God. God doesn't have to use the same method to heal us, to reach us. He doesn't have to use some grand display of his power. God has no limitations to space or to time. You know, the Gospel of John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God and was with God. It was that same Word that created the entire universe and brought us all into existence. All the answers that we need for our crisis lie in the Word of God and simply believe in it. God is personal. He's relational. He grants every believer their own unique testimony based off the crisis that they're going through. A crisis is never a matter of what God is able to do, but rather what you will believe he will do based on who he says he is and what he says he will do. How many times do you have to hear the word before you start believing it? That's the question. You know, the Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9, verse 11. It says, my, this being my Christ speaking, strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul therefore states that, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. We're talking about godly conversion. We're wrapping up. The purpose of a crisis is godly conversion. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. So he being Naaman, because of his friends and the wise counsel that he was given, went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, according to the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and said, Behold, I know that there is a God in all the earth but in Israel. I know that there is a God, not where in all the earth, but only in Israel. You know, due to this crisis experience, due to the fact that Naaman had leprosy and that he was cured, he went from just being an honorable man to a godly man. When God solves your crisis, there's no shadow of a doubt as to who gets the credit and who gets the glory. Naaman's flesh, doesn't, it wasn't just restored, but it was actually transformed to that of a little child. Understand this, before Naaman had leprosy, right, he was commander of the army. That means that he was probably a seasoned warrior. He probably had wrinkly skin. He probably had leathery skin. He probably had scars from all the battles that he had been in. All, he probably had that weather type of look when you've been exposed to the elements and you've been sleeping outside and you've been camping with the troops and all that sort of stuff. So it wasn't a young looking man before he had leprosy. 
But God, but the word says that his skin was transformed to that of a little child, meaning no wrinkles, meaning an even tone, beautiful color, soft and smooth to the touch, radiant, full of life. It wasn't just an ordinary answer. It was a divine deliverance, a divine transformation. And that's what converted Naaman from just being a good man, because he served his master well, to being a godly man. Naaman was converted by his experience. He was able to reach the point of certainty that God does exist, that there is a God that does exist, and that God is the only God that's in relationship with the children of Israel. You know, Christian or not, believer or not, when people are delivered from their crisis experience, they're oftentimes so amazed by what has transpired that they will attribute their rescue to a higher power. They'll say it was the man upstairs. They say somebody was looking down on them or some type of miracle worker. Sound familiar? Don't all of those descriptions apply to a loving savior? You know, and even if the circumstances were such that the individual going through a crisis was delivered by what they thought was a human being, they'll oftentimes state that that person showed up at the exact moment I was facing death. It was as if an angel appeared out of nowhere. Point taken, it's a divine intervention that pulls you out of that crisis. It's a godly conversion that's trying to take place where God shows up and says, hey, I exist and I want you to know that I am real. I am a God that creates, but I am more so a God that saves. The account of Naaman is evidence that the love of Christ has to share with us isn't just for a select few. We've got to remember, Naaman was not part of the children of Israel. He was a Gentile like you and I are today. But Christ will use a crisis to prove to an unbeliever that he exists, but he'll use a crisis to prove to a believer that you can trust him, that his word is true, and that he does care about everyone. God so desperately wants to save us all, that he was willing to go through the ultimate crisis of Calvary. He didn't spare himself the penalty, but he paid it. And it was only after he paid it that he decided to then rise from the dead. Do you believe that? So like Naaman, how do we get to the point where we can say, now I know, that you're at the point of certainty that not only does God exist, but he's able to save, and able to save in any situation. If you look at our church and how we're set up and what we profess and claim, we're a praying church. And we'll say that prayer changes things. We'll say, you know, pray to the Father, ask for the Holy Spirit, pray in the name of Jesus, ask according to the will of God, believe that you will receive and it will be given unto you, pray without ceasing, or even recite some of God's own promises back to him while you're praying. But when you think about all those lists of things to do, it just complicates the matter. Let's simplify all that. All we're trying to do is focus on a relationship with Jesus Christ. Just think of it as spending time with God. 
So after you're in prayer and you've run out of all the words that you can say, anything that you can possibly think of, just sit there and spend time with them. It's as if two lovers coming together and they're just basking in each other's presence and each other's love. You're getting to know one another. You're getting to trust one another. You're getting to the point where you're certain about the love that somebody has for you that it would lay down its own life for you. You Remember, prayer is not meant to be a one-way street. It's meant to be a conversation. It's not a matter of just sending thanksgivings and prayer requests up. It's about what we can hear back from God. So, appeal time. You know, typically at the end of uh, a sermon, what the speaker will often do is try and make an appeal to wrap up and try and tie together everything that is being said and ask the audience, will you take a stand with me and uh, let's try and make a change for this week. I'm not going to do a general appeal this morning so everybody can just relax. I already know that each and every one of you is going through a crisis. Whether I call for an appeal that you're going to turn that crisis over to God has nothing to do with me, but more to do with you and God. I'm just as likely to take a stand today, but yet come tomorrow, be challenged in my crisis, and forget that God is able to save. So the fact that you're going through a crisis, God knows. The fact that you're going to turn it over to him, he knows. But that's between you and him. What I'd like to do is simply this. Ask you the question, how long are you going to go on hearing without believing? So for the individuals that have been hearing the word of God over and over again, but yet you haven't made the public decision to be baptized or maybe you're thinking about re-baptism, that's the appeal. How long are you going to just stand by and hear the word of God over and over again without believing. You've been in your crisis long enough. You've been in that state long enough. It's simply time to make a decision. The Bible tells us that all we have to do is repent and be baptized. We don't need to know everything there is about God. We just need to repent and be baptized. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So the action is clear. Simply repent and be baptized. Everything that you need to learn about God, that's from the gift of the Holy Spirit. That comes after the repentance. It comes after the believing. You got to believe first. You want to know everything there is to know about God? That'll come through the Holy Spirit. Don't worry about that. Just repent and be baptized. So that's the appeal this morning. Won't you come? The reason why baptism is so important is that it calls us to make a public stand for Christ. It's not a matter of fighting the battle against the devil yourself. It's simply indicating to the universe that you're on the side of the Savior. That's why it's important. 
it's also removing from you and from your heart that spirit of fear, of uncertainty, of anxiousness, that regardless of what happens in this life, because there is a savior and a creator that existed outside of this life and before this life and has existed and will exist after this life, you don't have anything to worry about. The crisis will come, the hardships will come, the fear of death may come, but Christ, the God that saves, is there for you. Won't you come? If you're viewing online, you can see up on the screen how you can contact the church. The offer is open to join the body of Christ. I'm just going to allow it a few more moments and then we're going to close with prayer. Just let the Spirit speak to you. How long will you keep on believing before you commit? You've heard it long enough. Now it's time to believe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for who you are. You were there from the beginning, and you've already seen the end. You know exactly what life is like throughout all the ages of eternity. Father, you know the current plight of our situations, but you have bigger things and bigger thoughts on your mind for us. That we would simply move from just hearing to believing. And in believing, being transformed by the power of your saving grace, that you're a God that creates and saves. Father, I thank you for every word and every opportunity that you grant us to choose you. I know that your word has gone out, and I know that it's resonating with someone, Lord. And I ask that you would place within them the power and the courage to simply choose you this day. Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than acts or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory, to the church, and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever, that the saints say, Amen and Amen.